0: Welcome to the British History Podcast, my name is Jamie, and this is episode 307, Cleaning House. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at the Podcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Cecilia, Martin, and Sean for signing up already. The king is dead. Long live the king. Edwig, the 18-year-old king known for his beauty, had died. Somehow. His reign had been a difficult one, and his actions hinted a story of a weak king who was overwhelmed by internal political crises. And actually, Edwig's troubled reign is kind of strange because he was the first English king in a very long time to have reigned over a kingdom which was technically at peace. Edwig faced no Scandinavian pirates, no armies from Dublin, nothing. All things being equal, you'd actually expect Edwig to be regarded as one of the great kings of England, simply due to the fact that the kingdom was free from external threats and finally had a chance to rebuild. But rebuilding wasn't on his agenda. Because even though the raids had halted, the kingdom had been plagued with threats. But these threats weren't coming from across the North Sea or from Jorvik. They were coming from the south, from members of his own court, and from nobles from lands that were traditionally loyal to the House of Wessex. And I suppose, in a certain sense, those lands were still loyal to the House of Wessex. They just weren't loyal to Edwig's particular branch. And this inability to unify his own house had weakened Edwig's rule so much that he had been forced to cede half of his kingdom to his baby brother. King Edwig was not a great king. He was a failure. But now that he was dead at the age of 18, there was a chance to try something new. Edwig's 16-year-old brother, who had already been reigning as king of Mercia, Northumbria, and East Anglia, would now be the king of a reunified England. There was a chance for a new start. And with that new beginning, I'm sure the hope was that King Edgar would avoid the pitfalls that had so hampered Edwig. And actually, it looks like right from the start, King Edgar set out to take his brother's Achilles heel and turn it into his own silver bullet. Because the thing that had brought down Edwig was also the thing that was propelling Edgar. And all of it largely centered on a fight over who would control the English church. Now, it's hard to overstate exactly how much of an upper hand secular rulers had gained over the island's religious affairs. It's not just that the religious institutions were being filled with children of the nobility. It's also the fact that over the years, the clergy had lost so much power in their own religious houses that they were often no longer staffed by members of the cloth at all. Now, back in the days of Bede, in the 7th and 8th centuries, monasteries were staffed by a mix of monks, nuns, and clerks. And that last category, the clerks, were also called secular priests. They would act in a religious capacity, but they weren't bound by the same rules as the monks and the nuns. They could and would get married, for example. They'd have children. They'd own homes. But the clerks aside, back in the days of Bede, these religious houses would otherwise behave the way you'd expect them to, because you still had monks and nuns running around doing monk and nun stuff. You know walking around being unmarried, not owning any personal property, living outside the inheritance system, and generally focusing their lives on religious and contemplative matters. And with so much attention being placed upon intellectual pursuits, these houses actually began to function not just as homes for the devout, but also as places for scholarship. And as a result, we see some incredible art coming from these communities, everything from illuminated manuscripts to beautiful stone masonry. But over time, Things started to change. And in the chaos of the Viking Age, those changes had accelerated. Many monasteries had started closing their doors. Now, the usual story blames this on a bunch of tall ginger dudes with a pack of matches and too much time on their hands. And to be fair, monasteries that were in regions that were heavily raided were much more likely to close. Iona being the most famous example of this. But there are plenty of other religious houses that decided to pack up and relocate rather than try and fend off the seemingly endless stream of Scandinavian pirates. But, as you might remember, the biggest danger to monasteries during this period wasn't Olaf Guthrifson. It was Thane Athelbrad. Anglo-Saxon nobles were facing severe downward pressure on their political and economic position. And this was thanks in large part to extreme wealth concentration. And in response to this, they were looking for new ways to extract money from their lands. And that meant that some of them were seeking to acquire dominion over nearby monasteries. And they did this any way they could, sometimes just taking their lands outright. The height of the Viking Age was a land bonanza. And none managed to exploit this quite as well as the House of Wessex. And in many cases, rather than returning the lands to the church once the crisis had passed... The lands were either retained by the crown or handed out to their supporters. These monasteries were rapidly losing ground. And even for the monasteries that retained their lands and stayed in operation, that didn't mean that they were untouched by all of this. There was a cultural shift that was happening on the island. And no one is immune from culture. What was happening here started to reshape the cultural landscape surrounding religious life in Britain. And it did so right down to the staff. The days where monasteries were filled with large numbers of monks and nuns was now in the past. Many of the most influential religious houses were staffed almost exclusively by the clerks now. And as I mentioned, these clerks owned homes and they had personal possessions. They were getting married and having children and they were passing on their property to their heirs. Which meant that rather than existing outside the economic pressure cooker of the 10th century, as the monks had been doing, The clerks were right in the middle of it. And inevitably, they started responding to the incentives that were contained in the system. And so we begin to see monastic lands, which were once held in common by religious orders, being claimed as personal property by the clerks, and then handed down to their children. They were privatizing anything they could get their hands on. And if you set aside the fact that these clerks were overseen by a bishop... Everything else about them begins to make them look like a parallel track of nobility rather than a religious order. They even began to have their own dynastic issues in play. And to make matters worse, many of the people serving as clerks, especially the more powerful clerks, were from noble families themselves. And with this shift in the incentive structure, houses that were once centered around intellectual pursuits were now being filled with people who were focused on dynastic acquisition. And as a result, we see a marked decrease in the production and quality of written documents, as well as artwork. The monasteries were selling out, and the nobles were cashing in. Those who had learned to take advantage of this situation were creating a second revenue stream, one that sometimes even came with royal cults tasked with elevating the stature of an entire dynasty. Others were taking a more direct approach, and were just taking the religious lands and buildings outright, and adding them to their economic war chests. Basically, the last couple centuries have been pretty hard on monastic orders in England. And that brings us to the transition from King Edwig to King Edgar. Often when King Edwig is discussed as a historic figure, he's framed as existing in opposition to the church. And I can see why that is. He kicked Bishop Dunstan out of England, and Archbishop Otta forcibly annulled Edwig's marriage. Clearly, the relationship between Edwig and the church had been on the rocks. But given the scale of gifts that he was giving to the church, I have a hard time seeing him as standing in opposition to it. I don't think that Edwig's issue was with the church. The church during Edwig's time effectively served noble interests and was largely in the pocket of the crown due to the fact that the king, not the pope, was the person who got to appoint bishops and archbishops. That's a lot of power. So I think the conflict in Edwig's reign was more nuanced than that. I think he had a problem with monasticism. See, Dunstan wanted to break up the party by instituting Benedictine reforms. And doing that would undercut the power and income of both Edwig and many of his allies. I think it was probably that simple. A fight over who controlled the monasteries. Was it the church or was it the nobility? And that brings us to King Edgar. You probably haven't heard of Edgar, People familiar with this era know about Alfred and Athelstan, but not Edgar, even though Edgar's reign lasted longer than either of theirs. So why is he relatively invisible? Well, unlike many of the more famous English rulers, Edgar didn't have to defend the kingdom against an invasion. He didn't have to fight a civil war. He didn't lead an army overseas. Edgar ruled England during a time of unprecedented peace. And that allowed him to carry out some pretty influential reforms. But a lot of self proclaimed history buffs, and honestly, a lot of early historians, tend to get bored with things like that, and are generally of the opinion that if there isn't a dude with a sword trying to poke another dude with a sword, then there's nothing really important happening. But several extremely important things would take place during the reign of Edgar, and they weren't battles, they weren't even really political. Actually, English politics was quite stable during Edgar's ascension to the throne. Despite the internal conflicts that marked the reign of his brother, when Edgar took the throne, things kept ticking along without so much as a hiccup. For example, we don't see a major reshuffling at the royal court. If you were a powerful elderman under Edwig, you would still be one under Edgar. But, that being said... Edgar's ascension to the throne was the start of a tectonic shift in religious culture on the island, and he appears to have had a direct hand in it despite coming to the crown at only the age of 16. And central to many of these changes was Edgar's support for Benedictine reforms and monasticism in general. King Edgar, who had been educated by one of Bishop Dunstan's disciples, Bishop Athelwald, had come to believe that the English church desperately needed to be reformed. And this went well beyond a quiet encouragement from the edges. Edgar had learned, perhaps through his years with major Benedictine figures, that Reformation required royal support. Much of what the reformers didn't like was the influence of secular people within the monasteries. And to deal with that, they needed secular power. They needed the support of the king. So if these reforms were actually going to get instituted, King Edgar couldn't just mouth support for Dunstan. He would actually have to do something. And the fact of the matter is that there are few English kings in all of history that had Edgar's degree of enthusiasm for ecclesiastical matters. And as we go forward, we're going to see him wielding the full English governmental apparatus in support of those reforms. He might have just been 16 years old, but Edgar was here to work. And he seems to have been a bit of a top-down kind of guy because he went straight for the most powerful religious seat in England, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, as it happens, shortly before Edwig died, Archbishop Otta of Canterbury had also died. And in this period, it was the duty of the king to pick a replacement for the archbishopric. And King Edwig had a little time before his demise to make a selection. But the guy King Edwig picked died while traveling across the Alps to get his investiture. So, a bit of bad luck there. And so, King Edwig went with his backup, Bishop Brighthelm of Wells. And then, shortly after Brighthelm was invested, King Edwig died. But this meant that the Archbishop of Canterbury, Brighthelm, was already in place when new King Edgar came into his throne. So, Edgar was stuck with an archbishop that he didn't pick. And it wasn't just some random bishop the Archbishop of Canterbury set the tone for how religious matters would be handled in England. And that turned out to be a really big problem for new King Edgar. Because Archbishop Brighthelm wasn't a Benedictine reformer. And King Edgar was. So, King Edgar declared that Archbishop Brighthelm was too gentle. And as such, he had to be demoted and sent back to be merely the Bishop of Wells. It's a hell of a thing to read of a king denouncing a religious figure for being too gentle, but this should give you a sense of how the reformers were approaching this fight. King Edgar and his fellow reformers weren't looking for a kind religious figure who would bring everybody to the table and find common ground. They wanted someone who would take it to the mat. They wanted Dunstan. And so, Bishop Dunstan, who had barely had time to get used to his new sees at Worcester and London was already getting a promotion from Edgar. And it was pretty much the biggest promotion he could get unless he decided to move to Rome. So just like that, the leader of the Benedictine reformist movement, a man who had been exiled from the kingdom three times, had become the supreme religious authority in England. And as for Dunstan's old bishopric at Worcester, well, that would be now held by Bishop Oswald, another Benedictine reformer. It was a new day in England, and for the Benedictines, it was a pretty good day. And given Edgar's complaint about the gentility of the previous archbishop, you might be expecting Dunstan to come in swinging. But it seems like Dunstan's years in exile had finally taught him a bit of strategy and patience. Or, you know, maybe he just didn't want to run the risk of getting beaten and dumped into a cesspit again. Whatever it was, Dunstan didn't wage an open war with the clerks, full of fire and brimstone he didn't forcefully cast them out of the church. Instead, the former firebrand began to gently slouch the kingdom towards reform. As clerks retired, he replaced them with Benedictine monks. When oppositional figures within the higher rungs of the ecclesiastical orders retired, they too would be replaced with Benedictine reformers. Dunstan wasn't looking to demand an overnight change from people who were likely rather comfortable with the status quo. If he did that he'd probably just end up getting beaten up again. So instead, he was making lots of little changes. He was putting his people in positions within the structure where he wanted to make changes, knowing that once they were in there, they could influence policy on a day-to-day basis. Dunstan wasn't demanding a cultural change. He was orchestrating it. And he was doing it in a way that wouldn't garner a lot of opposition. And it was working. And it seems like the selection of Oswald to take over Worcester was also well chosen, because he was doing exactly the same thing that Dunstan was doing, only on a smaller scale. So with King Edgar's first appointments in place, we can already see how they would influence the ecclesiastical life of England. But as I said before, many of the church complaints involved secular matters, not ecclesiastical ones. And as such, they required royal intervention. So upon taking the throne, King Edgar decided to reform the legal system. He wanted to curb some of the more egregious abuses that were carried out against the monasteries. You see, it turned out that there was a loophole in the laws regarding the Church scot and other tithes that were owed to the church. The laws of England clearly stated that tithes and Church scot must be paid. But as for who they should be paid to, well the law simply states that they were due to, quote, the places to which they are legally due, end quote. Nice circular language there. I mean, if the government told you that you just have to pay your taxes to the people that you're legally required to pay your taxes to, and they didn't say anything else, how do you know who to pay? Furthermore, what's to stop your local mayor from saying, well, you pay your taxes to me because I'm the mayor. And if you're thinking, well, I mean, you just use your common sense for who to pay. Keep in mind that at this point, pretty much all of England was a mesh of cascading layers of overlapping fealty. Without a clear statement of law, who knows who is legally due those tithes? It could be pretty much anyone with a modicum of power in your region. The bishop, the archbishop, the thane, the elderman, the king, maybe even a churl. The fact is that that language was ripe for exploitation And it looks like there are more than a few nobles who realized that and decided to get paid. So King Edgar set out to fix it. He said that those payments were now due specifically, quote, to the old churches to which obedience is due, end quote. And the term old churches seems to have been a term of art that was referencing the pre-Viking era churches and monasteries that were responsible for spiritual guidance to large parishes. So basically, Edgar decreed that the church tithe should go to the church that you would expect to pay it to. It was a good fix. But it seems like Edgar was also aware of how sneaky nobles could be. And while that law was an improvement, it still had a pretty big flaw. If you were a noble and due to the land bonanza, your family acquired bookland rights to a church, well, in that circumstance, you could claim that the tithes gathered by that church were actually yours since you own the land that the old church sits on, and thus you were ultimately who they were bound to be obedient to. And with that reasoning, your cash-in could continue. But Edgar was on the case, and he mandated that even if a church with a graveyard was sitting on a nobleman's land, and even if that noble owned the land outright through book land, he still couldn't pocket all of the tithes that were collected. Instead, the noble was legally required to give at least one-third of the tithes to the church. And these things might seem small to you, but what we're seeing here is power being wrested away from the nobility and being handed over to the church. And part of what enabled Edgar to make these moves, even though they were actions that were likely to aggravate many of the landed wealth class of England, was the fact that Edgar knew how to choose his battles. Many of King Edgar's predecessors had spent long years attempting to subjugate and annex Northumbria. Wars had been fought, rebellions had kicked up, countless lives had been lost. And when Northumbria was uncooperative, pretty much all the other business of court appears to have ground to a halt. And King Edgar seems to have learned from that, because he was the first king to grant the Danish territories of England, namely Northumbria and East Anglia, a certain degree of autonomy. He decreed that in return for their loyalty, the Anglo-Danes would be allowed to follow their own social and legal customs. The Danes would be part of England, but they'd still have their own laws. And if you think those laws were lax, think again. Breaches of the king's peace were actually dealt with much more harshly in the Danish regions than in the English. But by doing this, King Edgar was granting them at least some degree of autonomy some degree of self-rule. And perhaps surprising no one, within a generation, that area of England would become known as the Dane Law. But it was still England, and King Edgar still reigned. Obviously, the English were still bound by his laws. But even though the Danes were allowed to have their own laws, they were still his subjects. Jorvik didn't appoint earls and bishops. That was King Edgar's right. The most wealthy and powerful individuals of the Danish territories just happened to be Edgar's retainers and courtiers. If King Edgar went to war, then the Danish areas would be duty-bound to provide soldiers for his army. Edgar was still king, but that being said, he was also doing something significant here. He was legally recognizing that Northumbria and East Anglia were no longer conquered kingdoms but rather they were integral parts of England with a history and culture that would be respected by the crown. And I'm sure the hope here was that by doing this, he would avoid the constant threat of civil war that had marked the periods when his predecessors had been ruling over Northumbria. But this balance was precarious. Sometimes there were legal issues that crossed that border. For example, cattle theft was a significant problem, and it was one that required universal legal codes outlawing it, Because otherwise, people could just run across the border. But, while it's clear that Edgar wanted to curb cattle rustling, he also didn't want to offend the northern nobility. So while he did insist on the implementation of uniform laws regarding it, he did so in apologetic terms. And he followed it up by saying that while the suppression would be universal, the Danes could decide for themselves how they would punish the Danes that were guilty of the crime. Everything that was happening here was a careful diplomatic balance, and it seems to be clearly intended to prevent Northumbria from flying a flag of rebellion for the umpteenth time. And it worked. Edgar managed to do something that no other ruler had accomplished in Northumbria. He reigned as king over that region without any major unrest, any coups, or any civil wars. In fact, Edgar's touch with the Danelaw was so light that unlike Athelstan, who spent large portions of his reign in Northumbria, Edgar rarely visited. And that might account for why the Benedictine reforms that we've been speaking about were so heavily focused in the South. Edgar's power in the Danelaw might have been too tenuous to push for serious changes up there. So it looks like he kept his focus where he had the most influence, in the South. And these reforms and the diplomatic efforts in pursuit of them kept Edgar pretty busy for the next several years. But life goes on, and at about 962, when Edgar was around 19 years old, his first child was born. A son. And Edgar named the child after his grandfather, Edward. Sources regarding Edward's mother are spotty, but some sources indicate that Edgar had married the daughter of an elderman from East Anglia, a woman named Athelflad, and that Edward was their child. But... If those records are correct, it doesn't look like it was a happy marriage. Because on that same year, the same year when his son was born, Edgar, the zealous Benedictine reformer who's praised in the Chronicle for his godliness and his goodness, took a trip to Wilton Abbey. And there, he met a nun named Wolfthrith. And apparently, without much hesitation, he grabbed the nun and absconded with her to his residence at Kemsing. So much for the wife and child at home, I guess. And if you're expecting the Chronicle to castigate him for this, think again. The scribes completely ignore it, and often instead to heap praise upon Edgar during this same period. In fact, the entry for 959, which was the year when Edwig died, is essentially just one big praise poem to Edgar, saying all the kinds of stuff that you'd expect. Everybody loved him. God favored him. Everything was good under his watch. He was the most boss of kings. It really does go on for quite a while. And the only thing that they can find to criticize him about is this, quote, one misdeed he did too much, however, that foreign tastes he loved too much, end quote. Did you catch that? He was too nice to the Danes. That was his one misdeed. Not that one time when Mr. Godley went and stole a nun for sexual purposes. No, just being nice to the northerners. Though, I guess they did say, quote, he also reared God's glory wide, end quote. But I'm pretty sure that's not what they meant. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, pretty much everywhere. And you can find links to all of those communities in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com.